The United States military hasn't tested nuclear weapons in the atmosphere in more than 50 years. Recovery of the instrumentation pods ejected from the Starfish missile involved pre-dawn ship, patrol plane, and helicopter convergence in the splash area. Drawn by radio... But radioactive traces can still be found in our food today. They got apples from New York and oranges from Florida and cranberries from Massachusetts. And um, we found that more than half of the foods that they brought in had detectable radiation from the nuclear tests. But honey had far more radiation than other foods. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, how hot is your honey? But first, there's a long legacy of African-American churches being the food epicenter of their communities. And the Holy Temple Church of God in Christ in Charlottesville, Virginia, is no exception. Dozens of neighbors gathered recently to celebrate the renaming of the street from Rosser Avenue to the honorary C.H. Brown Way. Reverend Brown and his wife Angie fed the community for years, no questions asked. Now their son, Chef Ralph Brown, is continuing that legacy with his siblings. With Good Reason producer Lauren Francis spoke with Chef Ralph Brown. Um, the corn is in there. Mama used to drag us to that church every Sunday, Wednesday, Friday. It was prayer night and Bible study. And... Yeah, my parents used to always feed the neighborhood. They uh, shared what they had with people. That Chef Ralph Brown. Smells good, too. Yes, it smells good. <laughs> My dad was a very humble man, and he would not have asked for a street to be named after him or anything. He was just doing what he knew. But he was able to come to that neighborhood, build a church, and continue to build houses in that cul-de-sac until he had built every house in that cul-de-sac. Hey, hey, Kunky. Hey, so, uh, <laughs> so you serving some food up here? Keith? Yes. Hey, Yes. You want bacon fries? He's one of the reverends at the church his father built, the Holy Temple Church of God in Christ. And he keeps his parents' mission going by sharing meals with neighbors. Would you like mashed potatoes? Yes, ma'am. And gravy? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Green beans? Yes, ma'am. The joy of it, my mother, great pies, great biscuits, you know, uh, great potato salad. She could turn around a meal in, in no time for a huge amount of people. And um, she must have really had a great sense of satisfaction of putting that much food on the table. Like I said, even into her declining years, she was still, you know, when she prepared her own food, she was always carrying food uh, to the neighborhood. And that's really where we got it from, the whole uh, concept of feeding people. This is not to be confused with some nameless, heavily surveyed food distribution program. You know, a lot of people think today it's a program or, you know, your church has a feeding program. But this evolved out of reality. People aren't showing up simply because there's food and they're hungry. People show up because trust has been established. One of the most toughest things that we used to do way back early on when we got food from the food bank in place, they want you to sign up people, ascertain as to whether they were low income or not, and, you know, that kind of thing. And, And we always kind of ignored that part because, you know, hunger knows no boundaries. The church doesn't ask people to sign up or prove that they're hungry. We developed a trust from the community over time that when we show up, we had food. And it made no difference who you were or what your status was. We were going to get food away until it was all gone. Boy, he came, he said, do you have chicken? Oh, 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 okay. He thought you were serious. He thought you were in the deep, deep south. People know that they can go down to the church that C.H. Brown built and be fed with their pride still intact. So for Charlottesville, we used to pick up ten to 15,000 pounds of sweet potatoes or potatoes on a single weekend, okay? How long does it take to distribute 10 to 15,000 pounds of potatoes, one might ask? We'll get rid of them in the same afternoon. And again, people know you can take as much as you want, okay? No question. 
No questions asked because hunger knows no barriers. Why would you judge people for taking food? Food is perishable, okay? <laughs> Nobody throwing the food away. Now, when congregants go to the white cinder block neighborhood church, they get there via the honorary C.H. Brown way. And they come over to look, look at this neighborhood because this is what Angie Brown and C.H. Brown did with their life. And neighbors know that once inside the church, they'll find Reverend Brown and his siblings serving them yet another delicious meal. And there's a song that, that, that we sang in the church, may the work I've done speak for me. Okay, when I'm resting in my grave, may the work I've done speak for me. I appreciate it. Uh-huh, you're welcome. Thank you. All right. You need silverware? Yes, ma'am. Okay. For With Good Reason, I'm Lauren Francis. The United States military hasn't tested nuclear weapons above ground in over 50 years. But radioactive ingredients remain in our food supply. Jim Cast is professor of geology at William & Mary. He tested foods from Florida to Maine for the radioactive ingredient cesium-137, and they all had it. But the honey was especially radioactive. So how hot is your honey? Jim, you realized one day that neither your students nor their parents were alive during the years when nuclear bombs were tested above ground. What did you want them to understand about what that testing had done to the environment? I wanted them to realize that they were brought into a world that was contaminated by radiation from these nuclear weapons tests during the 1950s and the 1960s. And it's everywhere. It's, this, this radiation can be detected on every square meter of the Earth's surface, including the Arctic and Greenland ice caps um, in the ocean, um, on, on mountains everywhere. And so it's really just really, it's very pervasive. And I think most people don't learn about this in high school. And I wanted them to, to know about this. When were the tests conducted? And in the U.S., where were the bombs going off? So the tests were primarily in the very late 1940s up and through up into uh, the mid 1960s. And then we had a an agreement that was made to stop the atmospheric tests in 1963. And in the US, the the tests started out in the desert southwest, uh, mostly in Nevada and New Mexico. But then um, we moved them to the Pacific Ocean because they were getting more and more powerful when we developed the H-bomb. And the really big tests we wanted to do, we wanted to do outside the continental U.S. So we went into the Pacific Ocean and went, uh, tested them near the atolls. And the other important thing to know is that a lot of the radiation that we have in the United States is, in fact, from the Russian tests as well because of atmospheric transport. So when these tests were made, let's say the ones that were in the U.S., in the Southwest, what sort of fallout or result was detected nearby in people or animals? Immediately near the tests, one of the most amazing things to me is that people reported tasting metal. And that was the tower, the steel tower that was vaporized. Most of the tests in the Southwest were constructed on these huge towers that vaporized when the bomb went off. And then people nearby could taste the metal in their mouth. Um, sometimes the cattle would be burned because the fallout would come out and burn sheep, for example. And um, there are many, many reports of people nearby uh, developing cancer who lived what's called downwind of the tests. This is all horrific, but what also fascinates me is you have taught that a lot of the effects from the fallout from these bomb tests were more prevalent on the east coast of the United States than they were as the fallout drifted across the plains. Right. So one of the interesting things is that when the bomb goes off, it went off over the desert where it's obviously very dry. And then that debris drifts towards the east, just with the general prevailing winds, over, you know, the central U.S., which is also kind of dry. But then once the fallout reached the eastern U.S., that's where it rains a lot. And the rainfall, especially thunderstorms, is very effective at scavenging the radiation from the atmosphere and bringing it to the Earth's surface. 
So do you think that there were places where the greatest rainfall occurs every year in the United States where the most radiation fell and got absorbed into the ground? Well, that's true to an extent. I mean, certainly within about a mile of the test site, I mean, that place was very, very contaminated. But once you get out of the immediate blast zone and you start to move, let's just say, over 100 miles away, then rainfall becomes the major delivery mechanism. So if the tests were done between the 40s and the 60s and then stopped, is there still any harmful fallout left from all that testing? Well, again, there are some places where you can't walk at the immediate test site areas. So certainly there's some fallout that came down and contaminated that land to the point where we can't use it for a long, long time. Out, you know, where in the eastern U.S., I would say that most of the radiation has decayed down to the point where it's not dangerous. Good. (laughs) You did an interesting experiment. You wanted to show the students how you could detect radiation in the ground, in crops, in plants, long after these tests had ended. So you had them bring food samples from their hometowns. Tell me about that experiment, what they brought and what you did. Yeah. Well, first of all, I had no idea what we were going to find. It was really it was really just a class project that I thought would be really interesting. I figured that we would get a sampling of the radiation that's in the food from the 1950s and the 1960s. And I suspected that a small number of the foods that they brought in would have very low trace detectable uh, cesium-137. The students really loved this. They brought in a range of foods. I got apples from New York and oranges from Florida and cranberries from Massachusetts. I got a lot of interesting foods that represent a lot of the regions they came from. And um, we found that more than half of the foods that they brought in had detectable radiation from the nuclear tests. But honey had far more radiation than other foods. And the detectable radiation you did find wasn't deemed dangerous, right? It was just there. Correct. It's not deemed dangerous. And it's, it's important to keep in mind that we are all radioactive and the ground is naturally radioactive and we live in a radioactive environment. But we can detect the specific radiation left over from the nuclear tests by looking for certain signatures. Tell me about the test you did on the honey. It astounded you. It, it did. And when, student, when two students brought in honey from, um, from the eastern U.S., and I, I did not expect to find a tremendous amount of cesium in the honey. And when I first put the sample on the detector... Um, you know, you can kind of see the data accumulate. And I, I thought it may have been a mistake. I was so surprised to see the cesium at that level in this honey sample. It was 20 times more than I would have guessed, to the point where I thought that it may have been from a nuclear power plant nearby. So the honey sample that was higher than I thought it would be came from North Carolina, uh, central North Carolina. I'm, I'm amazed that the honey was from a farmer's market. Yeah, honey is very popular at farmer's markets now. And that's how I did most of my study is I went around to different farmer's markets in along the eastern U.S. And it's great because honeys, honeys are wonderful food. You know, it's thought to be this pure food. And I think that a message of my study is that it's, it's hard to have a pure food these days. Um, you can call something organic um, or you can think that your food comes from a very pristine area. But every square meter of Earth's surface, even places that you consider to be pristine, was contaminated by this fallout, and it's still there today. So what did you do after you realized the honey had a lot? Did you think it was just a (laughs) one-off, or did you start to think, this is a honey thing? Well, um, I slept on it, (laughs) if you will, you know. And then, in fact, what I did is I called my friend Andrew Elmore at the University of Maryland, and he's a co-author on the project. And Andrew's an ecosystem scientist, and he's a generally incredible natural scientist. And I just, I told him about it. I said, hey, I I did this project with some of my students and, you know, I had them go get food. And we measured it for cesium, which is left over from the bomb test. And I found this one honey sample that was just very, very high. And I just wanted to get another scientist's opinion on this. And he said, you got to get some more honey and figure out what's going on. (laughs) And so... Over the course of about two years, I collected over 120 honey samples. I got the honey from farmers who can tell me where their hives are and can tell me what kind of plants they think 
their bees are going to. Uh, over 100 samples from Florida all the way up to Maine. And I was really decided to focus my study on the eastern United States because the eastern United States did not see any nuclear weapons tests. And so more or less the distance to the tests were were all equivalent from Florida to Maine. And I can really figure out, is this a, you know, is this a North Carolina thing or is this a honey thing or all the honeys going to be the same? Um, and what we found was that there was a wide range in the amount of cesium that we saw in the honey, um, a factor of about 500, which is another very surprising thing. Um, generally speaking, we found that the honeys from the southeastern U.S., from Florida up through Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, those tended to be higher in cesium than the honeys that we collected from Virginia north towards Maine. And what is cesium? Cesium-137 is the radioisotope that is from the nuclear weapons tests. So why would you see cesium-137 in the honey of southern states, but not see it in the east coast, more northern states? So the reason why there's more cesium in the honey from the southeastern United States is because the soils are more deficient in nutrients and there's less potassium in the soils in the southeastern United States. So all plants require potassium as a nutrient. And it just so happens that the atomic size of cesium is very similar to the atomic size of potassium. So the cesium is in the honey because plants absorb cesium from the ground because cesium-137 looks like potassium. So as the plants, you know, they're hungry for potassium, they look down in the soil in the southeastern United States and they don't see much potassium. So cesium can travel up the, the roots and essentially mimics the potassium. Did you find one state that seemed to have the most problem? Florida. <laughs> um, Florida, and it, it has to do with the types of soils that they have in Florida. So the Florid Floridian soils tend to be low in potassium. And so we found a far more higher cesium-137 in the honey um, there. What does all this mean to you? I mean, what's the significance of it? If it's not going to really be too bad for our bodies... What is the lesson you want us to understand from how bees and honey and plants have ingested this nuclear fallout? So honey is a really useful environmental monitor because if you think about it, this is, this is really kind of exciting for environmental scientists. The bees, they fly around and they sample plants all over and then they bring back a little sample to the hive and then they make honey from that nectar. And so a jar of honey is really a bottle of the environment for that small area around the hive. So um, we can use honey to measure environmental quality or to track environmental quality. Uh, everything from radioactivity to microplastics potentially uh, to heavy metals like mercury or lead or pesticides or herbicides. Um, there's a lot of information in a jar of honey and it, I've gotten really interested in this and interested in looking at other aspects of the honey. Jim Cass, this is fascinating to me. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Of course. Thank you for having me. Jim Cast is a professor of geology at William & Mary. Coming up next, what keeps bees buzzing inside indoor vertical farms? There's no shortage of bad news for the future of our food supply. Thankfully, there's no shortage of people working towards solutions either. Mike Evans is director of Virginia Tech's School of Plant and Environmental Sciences. He's excited about vertical farming, which he says can take the place of overworked land. Mike, tell me about vertical farming. Is this done only indoors? So actually, Sarah, the term for vertical farming would actually be uh, primarily in an indoor structure that would not be a greenhouse. So solid indoor warehouses, converted buildings. And the key is we can go vertically high and we're indoors and we supply all of the light to the plants in those cases. So very, very different from a greenhouse hydroponic scenario. Could we use old abandoned Kmarts and big box stores? 
Actually, yes, that's um, that is one of the common strategies that indoor vertical farm facilities take advantage of. Vertical farming is really becoming this intersection of agriculture with technology. We're not just growing plants sort of in a horizontal plane. We're actually going up many, many levels. They may have 12, 14 levels going up. And imagine each level then you're having to supply the water, the fertilizer, the light. What are the benefits of vertical farming for the most part? We can often take non-arable land. So that would be land that we really can't, you know, go till and grow crops on. And we can turn it into food production land. So you may be in an urban area, a brownfield, or, you know, an area that's been reclaimed. It's not really suitable to till and plant, but you can put an indoor vertical farm on that land. And are all of these plants grown vertically like this and indoors necessarily organic? Um, No, they're not. There are some producers that will produce product organically, and there are others that are not producing uh, organically. Why not? What are they using? By growing indoors, they can do things like either reduce the amount of chemicals they're using, not use chemicals, only use biorational. So there's sort of, that's a sort of a gradation across the spectrum. How do you grow indoors if you're not growing in a greenhouse without bees and sunlight and wind? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a real fun question. So some of our crops yeah. don't need pollinating, right? If we're doing lettuce and herbs, that's a vegetative crop, right? It's the stems, it's the leaves we want. But if you think about tomatoes and peppers and strawberries, um, we need reliable pollination, but we're indoors. And we typically can do that two ways. Probably the most common way that we do that is we use bumblebees. And growers actually, companies actually can buy small boxes, small hives of bumblebees that they stack, you know, at the ends of rows in their facility. And the bumblebees go out and do the work for us. And they will go out and pollinate the peppers and the tomatoes and the strawberries and things like that. And bumblebees, not honeybees. Bumblebees, not honeybees. Give me a couple layers of the kinds of foods that are now growing best vertically. So greens and herbs are very, very common. People are doing a lot of work now in expanding the types of crops that can be adapted to indoor vertical systems. So there's a lot of work going on in, we call, we use the term micro tomato or super dwarf tomatoes, super dwarf peppers, Uh, that can sort of fit, you know, in that headspace on a rack that will do well. People are doing a lot of work and there's actual production going on now of growing strawberries in indoor vertical systems. People are also even looking at things like blueberries and trying to breed new varieties of some of these other crops that can be adapted and produced economically in indoor vertical farms. But we're not likely to see wheat or corn or other tall bushy things, right? The value of those crops would not make them, typically speaking, economically viable for indoor vertical farms in most cases. So when you look at a square foot, like inside of one of our facilities, and you look at the fixed costs and the variable costs, you have to look at as, as a farmer, even though we talked about these being sort of advanced manufacturing, you know, it's agriculture, we still have to look at how much product that I can sell can be produced per square foot per some period of time. So vertical farming mm-hmm. is more expensive. Yes. Typically, you have a much higher level of fixed costs and things like that, that, that some of the lower value agronomic crops, you just can't make money on those versus things like tomatoes and strawberries. You know, they're a high value, a high value prop. Horticultural crops will tend to carry higher values. Who do you find across the country is most interested in vertical farming? Is it all mostly experimental, you know, with joy by some people super into it, or have some companies and farmers and others embraced it and are doing it with relish? Um, No, we have actually moved to a point in this country where we have major or larger corporations, companies 
that are building, who are assuming market share for those products in the marketplace. We also have entrepreneurs, smaller scale entrepreneurs around the country that are taking advantage of indoor farming. Do you ever worry about, um, whoops, I didn't want to see too many warehouse structures built that replace arable land? No, I don't. Because again, I think that as, as we work through these facilities, the right technology ends up going to the right place. So, you know, you're not going to see these facilities built in places and situations where either the sustainability or the economics don't work. What are we moving toward, do you think? We've been losing farmland all across the country for decades now, and it's been demoralizing. Yeah, so I think where we're going is we're developing that technology, perfecting the technologies, the expanding the crops we can do. And again, we're going to be using our different types of production, be it field or vertical or greenhouse. We're going to be using those where they make sense and where they help us out. So, for example, if you're in a country and you have a high population and you have very limited arable land, how do you feed your population? One of the ways to do that is to take advantage, for example, of vertical farming, because on a small area of land, you can go up. You can also get more production cycles during a year and you can get more food produced in the space that you have. Another area I think that's really exciting and we talk about quite a lot, as we go through changes in our climate, it's going to impact our food production systems. And we really feel like indoor vertical farming is going to play a role as one technology that we can use you know, to adapt to climate change and still produce the food that the world needs. So it's going to become a climate change tool available to us. Michael Evans, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Hey, thank you very much, Sarah. Mike Evans is director of Virginia Tech School of Plant and Environmental Sciences. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. When the pandemic began, there were long lines for food pantries wrapping around blocks. Now, almost three years later, there are long lines for food, but it's due to inflation. Food costs shouldn't be as high as they are. My goodness, we're wasting 30, 40 percent of what we produce, and we've got lineups of people that need food. <laughs> None of this makes sense. When Kashif Majid first watched the documentary Just Eat It, a food waste movie, he was hungry to learn more. So he and a student started spending a few hours a week documenting the almost expired or already expired products at the nearby Fredericksburg Food Co-op. Majid is a professor of marketing at the University of Mary Washington, and he thinks food insecurity can be solved in America just by reassessing our massive food waste. Kashif, what was it that first piqued your interest in food waste? When did you start taking notice? There's a couple of things. It was really during the, the height of the pandemic. Um, I live about two blocks away from a, a church that does a grocery distribution. They've been doing it for a while. Um, when the pandemic hit, the lines for the grocery distribution were, were really long. They would stretch way past the block. There'd be cars that would line up well before... Um, the distribution started and you could see that things were really bad now, that, that people were struggling, that there was a lot of food insecurity. And I also saw a clip uh, by the comedian John Oliver on his show um, last week tonight. And he did a segment on food waste that talked about how much 
food we waste. And so that both those things came together. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're wasting 30, 40% of what we produce. And we've got lineups of people that need food. None of this makes sense. It is one of those stupid problems. It's not, it's not cancer. It is a problem that we can fix. So who in these countries is wasting the most? Is it businesses? Is it farmers? Is it households? I think it's it's you and it's me and it's probably everybody listening. <laughs> households are the the big culprit. Really? Even more than restaurants and and large packing houses? Surprisingly, yes. We throw out everything. You know, it's it's lettuce that, that has some spots on it. It's grapes that have a little bit of discoloration. And we're throwing out things because of a little date that's on them that makes us think, oh, whoa, I cannot consume this. And we're very militant about not going past that date. And so we will throw it out. That's wrong. And do you think people are throwing it out? I don't really pay attention. If the sell-by date is really far gone, I'll smell it, you know, or taste a little bit. Are people mostly throwing those things out? Unfortunately, they are. Unfortunately, it's people are very militant about these dates. And you should definitely look at it and smell it. And if it, if it meets that, that eyeball test, um, but they're looking at the date and thinking this is a food safety issue. And oftentimes it's not. In the majority of cases, it's not a food safety issue. There's focus groups. So consumers are brought in and then they're given different, say, potato chips. Let's use that example. Different potato chips at different dates. And they'll say these, these chips were manufactured two weeks. These chips were manufactured a month uh, ago. These chips were manufactured eight weeks ago. And they'll say, well, which one tastes the best? And that's how they're determining those dates. But they're perfectly fine. All the food is, is fine. So a lot of cases, this isn't scientifically determined. It's determined based on consumer perceptions. And I've been, I've been telling students, I've been telling my friends, my family, I've been telling other faculty that can't treat these dates as if they are etched in stone. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to break this cycle. And I'll, I'll just give you an example. In our household... Um, my wife, who's a very good cook, the other day we had, um, I think we, we had Swiss cheese in our fridge and it was two days past the date. And I told her, no, no, we're not throwing this out. And then later on, when I go back to try to make something out of the cheese, it's gone because it, she has thrown it out. She doesn't, she doesn't want to risk whatever could happen within those 48 hours past that date. So yeah, we are, if we don't consume it, we are throwing it out. There's a lot going into it. But households, we are we we are the biggest culprits. I feel like sell-by dates have proliferated in recent years. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's well, there's so many variations. There's sell-by, best buy, enjoy by, manufactured on, consume by. There's all these different variations of it. The those dates were originally put on um, by the retailer Marks and Spencer and to sell some of their cookies and their biscuits as a way of showing their freshness compared to their competitors because they put a right. date on. So now these are fresh cookies that can only be consumed at a certain time. And then it kind of got caught it kind of caught on that oh wait a minute people are paying attention to this stuff. Like this is this matters. This makes me think that this food is fresher than the one that doesn't have the date. Now Sarah, let me ask you something. Why do you think a manufacturer wouldn't stop doing this? Why do you think they don't want to remove the dates? Because they want us to keep buying new stuff and tossing the stuff we already bought. There it is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is if, if you yeah. have it in your fridge or your cupboard, then you're not going to buy a new one. You're not going to buy a new one if it's already there. If you haven't used it, if you bought it, haven't used it, and now you're two days past the date, there, you're going to go buy, you're going to go replenish your supply. You know, I have a young friend who loves to dumpster dive and finds great packaged and sealed up foods and items that are routinely tossed by big stores and pharmacies. I guess because of the sell-by dates, 
why is this person finding what seem like perfectly good foods that are just cleared from the shelves to make way for the next? Um, there's so many reasons. So yes, there are tons of things that are thrown out. There are entire dumpsters full of perfectly edible food behind grocery stores. If you ever get a chance, there's a documentary on YouTube called Just Eat It. Um, and it's by these two filmmakers in Vancouver who decide that for a few months, they're only going to consume what they find. They're not going to buy food anymore. They're only going to get what they find. So they go dumpster diving. They get food that had from, uh, from restaurants. They get food that, from events that have been catered. And they end up eating actually very, very well. They actually gain weight and they have mm -hmm. more food than they can consume and they have, to end up, they have to get rid of it. But they document how much is thrown out. Um, they do try to donate it. A lot of retailers do try to donate. We were working with the Fredericksburg Food Bank and they were showing us uh, the donations they get from, from retailers and it's in the thousands of pounds. And this is just one regional food bank. There are hundreds of thousands of food banks and food pantries around the country and they do get a lot from retailers. But the problem with that is that the food bank then has to come and pick it up and they can't come every day or every hour. Most food banks are not flush with resources and money and employees and such. Um, so they can only pick up so much. Those are a limited amount of supply. What do you see as some of the easiest solutions, both personally and by household and across the country, we might implement to massively reduce food waste? Let's start with a household perspective. Because we are one, we are some of the biggest producers of food waste. Um, one, the expiration, best buy, sell by, consume by, all these dates. There's only two products that actually have a federally mandated, tested expiration date. Two products. Sarah, do you, you want to guess what those products are? Meat, right? Nope. Meat and cans. Nope. Nope. Wow. You're, you're not alone. When I ask this question to a lot of people, <laughs> it's baby formula and baby food. Those are the only two oh. things, those you want to pay attention to. But don't treat pasta as if it's baby food. If it's past yeah. the expiration date by a few weeks, a couple of months, it's still fine. Those expiration dates are not, they haven't been tested in the conditions you're probably keeping them in. You're not keep, you're probably not keeping your pasta in hundred degree weather on trucks, um, transporting across the country. You're probably not doing that. So you can keep that stuff. The canned goods, you can keep that stuff for months past their expiration date. You can keep a lot of food like dairy, you can keep it past its expiration date. So stop throwing things out because you think that it's met this threshold and this threshold is, is it's like written in stone. It's not. In this past year, my students worked with the Fredericksburg Food Co-op, a small retailer in the city of Fredericksburg. And what they would do is they would look at food that was reaching or had uh, passed its expiration date that was on the shelf that the, that the co-op was going to discard and they would take that food and they would upcycle it. They'd make something out of it. They'd make a casserole out of it, or they'd make sliders, or they'd make a cake or something like that. And then we would all consume that product. And we were all fine the entire semester. Nobody got any foodborne illnesses as a result of consuming these products that were past whatever date was on the products. In fact, one student brought in sliders using cheese that was four months past its date. And it they were and they were delicious. Um, so stop throwing things out. That's one thing. Two, don't buy too much more than what you need. So those are two big things that we can do right away to stop wasting things at home. Um, from a retail standpoint, we really want to encourage donations. The food banks, at least the Fredericksburg Food Bank, gets most of their donations from retailers, and even then. That's there's still a lot of things being thrown out. But if we can increase the amount that's going to food banks and food pantries, that would be a phenomenal. That would, that would be huge towards limiting food waste and alleviating food insecurity. I mean, there's a lot of different steps we can take. 
Kashif Majid is a professor of marketing at the University of Mary Washington. Coming up next, what if you could eat meat without a single animal dying? Due to climate change and war, the circumstances that have long produced our favorite foods and the favorite foods of the animals we eat are in danger. Reza Avisapur and his colleagues are hard at work producing something called cell-made meat in the lab. Reza Avisapur is an assistant professor in the Virginia Tech Department of Food Science and Technology. Reza, you and your colleagues at Virginia Tech and at Tufts, MIT, UCAL Davis, VSU, and UMass have a $10 million grant from the U.S. government to work on lab-grown meat. What's lab-grown meat? Uh, Lab-grown meat is technically based on uh, isolating the cells uh, from the live animals without killing them, bringing the cells into the lab and growing them in the lab. Has anyone made meat or made fish yet? Correct. Yes, uh, there are lots of companies and uh, startup companies all around the world and in the United States that they were able to produce uh, cell-based chicken, cell-based steak, and cell-based shrimp and seafood. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine being able to duplicate the taste and the texture, especially, and the complicated texture of a real steak. So that's one of the challenges that many of these startup companies they were facing. But what they did was uh, mainly they started using mixing these cells with the plant-based material to best mimic uh, the, the, the actual texture. Has anyone made lab-grown meat that could be sold to the public in stores yet? Yes, they were able to produce them. In Singapore, they were able to sell their products, cell-based chicken in the restaurants, and many people, they tried them, and uh, they really liked that. Have any of your friends tried this, or have you tasted this kind of lab-grown meat? Unfortunately, I missed a couple of events uh, when they were selling the products, but some of my colleagues and friends, they tried cell-based chicken and cell-based salmon in the United States, and they really liked that. What sort of companies in the U.S. are most interested in seeing how fast and well we can grow meat in the lab Are they meat producers who already have, you know, beef and chicken and that kind of thing and want to diversify? Or are they just new companies that see this is going to be a real niche for the market? Many, many startup companies, actually, they started these activities first. And many large companies, very well-established companies like conventional meat producers, they are also partnering with these startup companies to introduce the new product into their uh, portfolio. You know, I looked it up and I found some of those private companies that are working on this sort of meat, a whole bunch in Silicon Valley, quite a few in Israel and other countries. Where else do you see this kind of activity? So actually, there are lots of companies right now in Japan, Singapore, China, in Asia, uh, overall in Europe, in UK, Uh, Germany. I've been working with several of these companies in Germany. There are lots of uh, support from the uh, incubators in Germany for these type of companies in Italy and also in Israel, like you said. So, so many startup companies. And you think the major motivation is that people love meat and they have a hard time transitioning to plant-based products, but consumers might be more interested in meat that is ethically produced without killing animals and yet still taste good? Correct. Yes, that's uh, one of the most important reasons that people, they would like to try the cell-based meat uh, because technically they can have a nice steak without killing any animal. And on the other side, it is really good for our environment. The amount of the water that you need to produce that cell-based meat is significantly less compared to the conventional meat. Still expensive to make in a lab, though, right? Nobody yet is doing this cheaply. Well, the price is uh, getting there. So, for example, in 2015, the first cell-based hamburger was around $350, but right now they can reduce that to $20, and it is getting there. So um, with the new technologies, new ingredients, it is, it is 
reducing really fast and it can be introduced to the market very easily. How is growing cells in petri dishes from stem cells from animals, let's say, different from cloning meat in labs? Or is it the same? Oh, no, these are actually two different things. So when you go to the brewery factory, there are lots of uh, big stainless steel tanks and they are producing your beer using the microorganisms, right? And this would be the same thing, the same facility, similar technology. And instead of having the bacteria, uh, the yeast converting the barley into the beer, you have the cells from the animals and they are growing, multiplying, and so they are eating the nutrients and producing some biomass for you. It is the same thing as brewery industry. But for cloning, actually, so we are using the uh, genomics and genetically modified organisms. That's totally different area. And you really couldn't call this meat vegan, even though ethically it doesn't kill any animals, right? It just draws off stem cells from living animals without harming them or no? Correct. So actually, vegan uh, vegan concept is based on using vegetables, right? Or the plant-based material. Right. And since, so the final product might have a little bit of the plant-based material, but still it has high amount of the cells from the animal. We cannot really call it vegan, but for those vegans that they are really concerned about the animal welfare, technically they can easily consume this product without being really concerned about that. There is no killing a step to produce the cell-based meat. But have there been ethical objections to any part of the process as far as meat and living creatures go? Uh, no, because technically um, we are just taking a little bit of samples from the live organism without harming them or without killing them. And we bring that small piece into the lab and um, we are growing the cells. Uh, so there is no a harmful step for any creature uh, in this actually uh, production facility or in this production platform. You know, I looked up a bunch of the private companies in the U.S. that are pretty far along in all this, and they have such interesting names, and it shows you what they might be doing to market or make certain kinds of meat. One is called Finless Food. Another one is called Just Another is called Memphis Meats, New Age Meats, Wild Earth, Wild Type, Super Meat, and another one called Meatable, which is funny because it makes me think of Lunchable, right? <laughs> yeah, so there are lots of companies actually, and some of them, they are uh, producing uh, seafood, some of them uh, chicken uh, or poultry, and some of them, they are working on both seafood and meat or just meat products. And for example, Memphis Meat recently they changed their name to Upside Food. Those are, uh, that's, that's one of the major companies in this area that they are trying to develop um, cell-based chicken. Um, there are so many companies working in different directions and that's, that's the beauty of this um, area because they are doing different things and they're trying to address the, the obstacles for getting the cell-based meat products into the market. What is the objection of the U.S. government and governments throughout Europe, but not Singapore, to consumer products made of this kind of meat? There is no objection uh, in the United States. Uh, it's just about the regulations and regulatory pathway and the policy Safety-wise, one of the major obstacles is this is a really new technology. And since this is very new, we have to develop food safety plan and we have to develop some hazards and understand the critical control points in the processing step uh, to make it easier for everyone. But since there is not that many companies producing them and there are different practices. So we need to actually develop these documents little by little. You think we're many years away? No, we are just probably uh, in terms of regulation, I would, I'm assuming one year uh, at this moment. Wow, I'm impressed. Anything you want to add that I haven't thought to ask you? 
there are different technologies. Uh, we are doing some cool stuff, you know, in the lab. We have a we have a couple of bioprinter and we are printing the meat. And just to let you know, we are using some of the plants that people, they don't like them. They don't eat them like a cactus or like a banana leaf. You know, there's not that much market for them or so we just take them, bring them to the lab. We remove the cells and we put our cells onto them and create some sheets that they are uh, like look like the meat. Reza, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for your time and for providing this opportunity for us. Reza Avizapur is an assistant professor in the Virginia Tech Department of Food Science and Technology. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Special thanks this week to Katie Clune of Virginia Folklife. For more about the apprenticeship program, visit virginiafolklife.org. And the inaugural Resonate Podcast Festival in Richmond, Virginia, takes place October 14th and 15th, this festival's exhibitions, workshops, and performances feature Sharon Mashihi of Appearances and Nick Vanderkolk of Love Plus Radio. For tickets, visit resonatepodfest.com. With Good Reasons production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.